Welcome to Wonderland. This is Journey Church, not Wonderland, in case you were confused. But what do you wonder? <clears throat> what do you wonder? Have you ever thought about that? We've shown this video a few times over the past couple weeks, and we've wondered, like, what do you wonder? I wonder what goes through everyone's mind as they've thought about that. You know, I wondered when I got up here, was my fly zipped up before I started speaking? Because that goes through my mind whenever I get up here, even though I've checked it three times. But we wonder, right? You wonder about things. I wonder why Netflix took Trolls off when my daughter loves it so much. And now she, right? Moms, no. What's the deal with that? I wonder who really assassinated John F. Kennedy, because I don't believe it was Lee Harvey Oswald. But we can go into that on another time. You know, if you're a Christian or a theist, you know, you might wonder, what is heaven like? What, what happens after we die? And, and we know we go to heaven, but what's it going to be like? You know, you wonder if uh, when you see your grandparents there, what, what's that going to be like? What are they going to look like? Are they going to be the old version that you kind of remembered right before they passed away? Or are they going to be young and, and kind of like how they were in their prime? Like, what are they going to look like? What's that going to be like? Am I going to be nice and skinny when I get to heaven? Because with the whole perfect body thing, you know, how, how am I going to look? Am I going to look good? Will my hair be cut? Like, should I get that cut before? I, you know, what's that all going to be like? But we don't really know. And if you're not a theist, maybe you, you don't believe in this whole God thing and all of that. But you probably are wondering at a time, like, what happens after we pass? What, what happens? Where do we go? What does that look like? And that might come up for you. And so we all wonder, and when we wonder, we kind of wonder through this frame of reference. Is that clicking a lot for everybody else? Yeah. All right, Mike at the other mic. So, uh, but we wonder through a frame of reference, and that's why I brought this nice window up here that's really dirty, which I left it that way on purpose for dramatic effect. But uh, I pulled this out of my basement. Jim had a small window, and I thought I would upstage him by getting a bigger one. And so... But we all look at life through a frame of reference, don't we? We all look at life through, through a window of sorts, and that window is filled with our past experiences, places we've gone before, sort of uh, things that have happened to us. Maybe the death of a loved one can shape how you see the world. Um, maybe a divorce. Maybe uh, lots of different things. You get fired from your job, maybe. And that kind of sh changes how you look at the world. Thanks, Chris. Now I'm going to wonder what it's like to preach with a handheld, because we all wonder. And so, um, but we wonder, and when you do that, you wonder through a frame of reference and, and a window to the world. It's sort of like a filter about how you take in all the different things that you encounter and how you look at life. That's sort of why we have this up here, because we all have different experiences, different hurts, different backgrounds, and that sh changes and that makes you how you look at the world. And, and you might want to think that we all think that our past doesn't really, you know, determine how we view the world. And we think that we're kind of better than that, that I can be objective about things that happen. But the truth is that this is how you view the world. It's through that frame of reference. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then you believe and we believe that God actually came down and became one of us. Right. That's the whole point of Christmas Day is that Jesus was born and he was God's son and he came to this earth. And when Jesus came, he came to clarify things for us, that God sent Jesus to kind of bring clarity to this whole thing and how we should view the world. And so when Jesus came, we believe, and Jim's talked about this, that he kind of stands between us and the mirror, us in the window, rather, it's on a mirror. 
And so he stands between us and the window so that we can view the world kind of through Jesus, that we won't have to look at it through our past experiences and our past hurts, but through Jesus. He stands on our side of that in spite of all the things we've been through, all, all the hurts that we've gone through and all the celebrations that we've gone to, through, that Jesus stands on our side. And so over the past uh, couple weeks, we've talked about this phrase that we're going to look at again this morning in, in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is kind of like a long sermon, really. It's not really a book per se, but it's in the Bible, so we call it a book. But Hebrews is sort of a long uh, sermon, and this is what it has to say for us this morning. It said, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So we were invited into this, all of us, so to fix our eyes on Jesus. And have you ever had a conversation with someone who doesn't look you in the eyes? That's frustrating, right? Like That's something we talk to our kids about, like, look me in the eyes. Look at me. I'm talking to you, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, because when you're looking at somebody, that shows that you're kind of paying attention to them, right? That, that gives them a respect, and, and so you're, you're listening to them. So fix your eyes, it says, on Jesus, and he's the one that's the pioneer, right? Some translations say the author of, like he created it. He's the, the pioneer, the first one, and the perfecter of our faith. And so when we fix our eyes on Jesus, then we're doing what the scripture says. But when we don't fix our eyes and we fix our eyes on anywhere other than Jesus, that's when our wonder leads to wander, as Jim has taught us last week. And we begin to wander. And my hope is today that if you've kind of started to wander in your thinking, and maybe you've wandered away from faith a little bit, and you've wandered, you've kind of opened that door up to, to start thinking, like, maybe I don't believe this whole thing, then my hope is that you would give it a second chance this morning. My hope is, is that you would give Jesus a second chance this morning, because I would be willing to bet that if you've lost faith, or you've kind of already walked out that door, or maybe you have one foot out it, that it's not really because of Jesus, it's not really because of anything that he did or didn't do. It's probably more has to do with your experiences, things that you thought, preconceived ideas or promises that you thought God made, but that he didn't. And we're going to look at that a little bit later. So my guess is it's not really Jesus that you left, even though you thought it was. And so we've asked this question, what is the faith that you lost, fixed on, or fastened to? If you're here today and you've kind of started to slip and maybe you've fallen away or you've kind of turned your back on this whole thing, what was it fixed on? Was it an experience? Was it something that kind of didn't go the way you wanted it to and that kind of opened the door for you to begin to wander? What was it fixed on or fastened to? And so as we approach Christmas, it's just two days away, as we approach it, we want to invite you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, the perfecter, of our faith. Not church, not like traditions and rituals. And Jim said, we're not super traditional around here because we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, not upon rituals and traditions and, and events and things like that. But we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so today, as we kind of look through all of this, there's one common kind of objection that a lot of people might have. And you've probably seen this on Facebook. I have a friend and he's a friend, but he posts all of these awesome negative things about Christians all the time, and I just love seeing them, and it just makes me want to slap myself in the face and be like, if he only knew, right? And so, but here's a common objection, is that Christianity requires mind-numbing, experience-denying faith. 
Have you ever had a friend mention that to you? Or maybe they've said, like, how can you believe that? Like, can you not look around the world and see what's going on? It requires mind-numbing, experience-denying faith. That in order to believe or to be a Christian, you've got to kind of pretend certain things didn't happen to you. You know, like, you've you got to pretend that certain things didn't happen to your family or your sister or your brother. Or that that never really happened because if that happened, then I couldn't believe this. And, and so I can't live in a world, you know, with science and Christianity. I can't believe in a world of science and Jesus, that God can't create the world. And then, but then there's this science thing over here. Like, I have to have mind-numbing faith and just believe it because it's, it, I'm told to. But the truth is that the original version, the original Christianity was nothing like that. It was not this mind-numbing faith where they just went through life and and had their rose-colored glasses on and they took pictures for Instagram with hashtag blessed all the time with their perfect cup of coffee and their Bible laid out in front of them. You know, like that's not how life is, right? Can I get an amen on that? Right? And that's the way that the early church, it wasn't like that. They had plenty of problems. They knew death. They knew sickness. They knew hardship. And people didn't follow Jesus in spite of all of that. They followed Jesus because of their experience, what they saw. And so we're going to look at that today as this role of faith, that they had faith in Jesus, in God. And so we're going to look at what faith actually is because I think, and Jim and we've talked about this, is that over time faith has become complicated, and it shouldn't be. It's become kind of confusing, and it shouldn't be, and it never was intended to be confusing. But pastors, people who stand up on stages like this, have kind of made it this weird, mystical thing, and we've been confused by it, and it never should have gotten to that point. So we're going to talk about faith. So what is it? Before we get to what is it, let's think about what it's not. And it's not a force, okay? It's not like a superpower, okay? Luke Skywalker is not like the beacon of faith, okay? You can't use faith as like this superpower to move God, to do everything that you want him to do. It's not this mystical kind of thing that we tap into over time, and then you can all of a sudden like, you know, put your hand up and like, God, cure this sickness. God, pay off my debt. Like, that's not what faith is. And, and we've kind of gotten to that point over time, but it's not a superpower. We can't use faith as like a divine lasso to, to kind of like rope God into doing our bidding, into doing what we want him to do. So it's not a force. It's not a superpower, but it's also not a formula, okay? It's not like you need to do, um, you know, raise your hand, you know, this high. You know, if, you, if you're only up here, it's not going to work. But if you go all the way up top, that's when you start dipping into the real faith, right? Or you can't, you have to pray like at least 12 times a day, not seven or three, but 12. It's not a formula that we have to kind of figure out. All right. So in the book of Hebrews, we're going to look at what faith is. Okay. In chapter 11, it starts out, it says, faith is, okay, this is what faith is. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for. And so when you think, okay, well, that's what faith is, but what is hope? What is hope? Okay, hope is wanting something to be with no guarantee. That's what hope is. I hoped that I would get here on time this morning. I hope that my kids will behave. That doesn't always happen, right? I hope that the girl I ask out is going to accept that and we're going to go on a date. I hope that date's going to lead to a second date. And maybe 
that will eventually lead to marriage. Like, I hope those things. I hope I'm going to get a raise, okay? But hope is just hope. There's no guarantee in that. My son hopes he's going to get a, a, a Nintendo Switch for Christmas. He's not. His dad's getting one because I bought myself one for Christmas because we can do that as adults. But he's hoping to get one, but it's not going to happen. There's no guarantee he's going to get it, okay? That's what hope is. Every year at work, um, we have a review in December, which is kind of like it could be a good December or not one, depending on how your review goes. And the hope is that I'll get a raise. That's kind of the hope is that I'm going to get a raise at work. And so I try all year long hoping that I'm going to get this raise. All right? So we're going to get to that in a minute. But it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And so that's still kind of confusing, but we have confidence in it, right? But what, what does that really mean? So the Bible, it keeps going on, and it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance for what we do not see. Okay, it's assurance about what we do not see. See, but how do you kind of get, like, what happens has to happen inside of us to move, like, from something that we're hoping that it will happen to being absolutely confident that it will absolutely happen? What has to happen for that to take place? And I think what, what that is, is, is this. When I go for my review and my manager, we talk about how the year went and my goals and if I met them and all that stuff, we talk about it and then I leave and I don't leave saying, hey, Gretchen, I, I, I hope I got that raise. Like, I hope I got it. But the truth is that when I left, my boss said, okay, after we've reviewed all of this stuff, blah, 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 you are getting a raise. So I have my hope changes to faith because of a, she told me so, like she promised, she confirmed it. There's assurance there. There's a promise, or it was put in writing. Assurance, something happens, occurs when you receive confirmation of it, or a promise is made. You hope that you're going to go on that date with that girl, right? But you're not going to show up at her house to pick her up unless she says, yes, I will go with you. Otherwise, you're kind of a creep, right? Like, that's weird. You don't just show up and be like, well, I texted you. You should be there. Like, you wait until... There's confirmation. That's when hope becomes faith. Okay, like if I invite you over to dinner and I invite, you know, 30 of you over, I'm not going to go buy 30 people's worth of groceries until I have confirmation that 30 people are going to show up. And then if we have a history together and I feel like you honor your commitments, then I'm going to buy all that food and I'm going to start that cooking because I have confirmation that you're coming. Okay, so that's what faith is. That's that's kind of faith. And, and to kind of break it down to like a working uh, translation of what that is, faith is confidence God is and will do what he promised to do. So faith is believing that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he's promised to do. So to clear that up a little bit, uh, I want to liken it to something we'll all understand. You've all seen the movie Elf, I'm sure. Maybe most of you, a lot of you. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies, okay? Buddy the Elf. So when Buddy goes in and sees Santa's sleigh for like the first time, right, he thinks, and uh, Papa Elf's like, oh, do you know how the sleigh flies? And he's like, well, yeah, off Christmas spirit. And so, but he's like, well, there's not been a lot of Christmas spirit lately, so the, the sleigh doesn't really fly anymore. And they have the clausometer, you know, that tells how much Christmas spirit there is, okay? Christmas spirit makes... The, the Santa's sleigh fly. Faith does not make God God, okay? 
I want to clear that up, that we don't believe God is because of faith, and we don't believe God keeps his promises because of faith. We believe God is who he says he is through evidence. We believe God keeps his promises through evidence. There's no faithometer that God will not cease to exist if you lose your faith. Okay, he is God. He will be today. He will be tomorrow. So your faith, it has nothing to do with God being God. Okay, faith is just having confidence that he is who he says he is. Faith is having confidence God is and will do what he promised to do. All right, so faith is confidence in what we hope for, and it's assurance about what we do not see. And it says this, okay, this little word here, this, which means all of this faith here, this type of faith, okay, this is what the ancients were commended for. That's what the next verse says. This is what the ancients, so kind of the, the big heavy hitters in the faith, the guys who were well-known for their faith, this is what they were commended for. This is like the thing they were known for was this kind of faith, this, this perfect faith. And they lived by faith. And if you carry on in chapter 11, you'll find that it starts talking about all these individuals and it names them all. And it goes into kind of brief descriptions because it, it sort of expects you to know who they are. Because this was written to Jewish people by a Jewish person probably who knew who all these people were. And so he starts with, with Abraham and he goes on and he goes, and this person, by faith, by faith, by faith, this person. By faith, this person. And he starts with Abraham. If you've ever heard of Abraham, raise your hand. Okay, I think everybody in here. Not the president, by the way. Abraham from the Bible. Two different people. All right, but Abraham, it says, by faith, Abraham left his home for a new one. Okay, God promised Abraham a new home, and he told him, leave home. Okay, I have a new place set out for you. But Abraham didn't have a clue where he was going, but he just went anyways. And by faith... He went there because he knew God keeps his promises. And so that's Abraham. They go on, they talk about Gideon, all right? Gideon from the Bible, you might remember his name, but the original 300, right? Like the movie that you probably saw, this is a different 300, okay? Gideon had 300 men that God, he had thousands of men, but God kind of whittled it down and said, you don't need like hundreds of thousands of men to destroy this other nation. I just want you to bring 300. Because God said, if you bring all these thousands of men, they'll just think that you just had so many men. That's how you won. But if you go in with 300, then everyone will know without a shadow of a doubt that God willed this, that this was God's plan, that God would keep his promise. And so Gideon, with 300 men, they were outnumbered 200 to 1. They saddled up, and they had trumpets and, and torches, not my choice of weapon, but they brought those with them, and they were victorious in battle, that God delivered them, the Midianites, just like he promised that he would. He answered his promise to them. And Moses, we all know the story of Moses where he uh, was in Egypt and all that, and then he left Egypt, barely escaping with his life, and then he's out in the desert wandering around, he's with these new people, and then he meets God in a bush, and God's like, I want you to go back to Egypt, the last place that you ever would have wanted to go, I want you to go back there and rescue my people, deliver them out. All right. So basically, remove the entire workforce from Egypt, and it'll be okay. Pharaoh will be cool with that, I promise. And Moses did it. He went because God answers his promise. God had a personal promise to them, 
And they went along with that because they knew that God had kept his promises to other people. And God made a promise to Abraham that was so much bigger than just move to a new land and I promise it'll be great. He made a global promise to all of us, but he made it through Abraham. In the book of Genesis, it says this. We're going to be skipping around a lot over this next part, but try to try to keep up. And so Genesis chapter 12, it says this. I will make you into a great nation. This is not a trick question. Was Abraham made into a, a great nation? Yes, he was. Many nations, actually. So check that off. Like, that's an that's a evidence. Boom. Okay? He did that. Promise kept. And I will bless you. Okay? If, if you are one person and you have a wife and you are far beyond your birthing years and somehow you're made into not just a nation but many nations, I think that you're blessed. Right? So he blessed Abraham. So check that one off. And I will make your name great. How many people raised your hand when I said, do you know who Abraham is? Every single person here. I'd say his name's pretty great, right? They even named a president after him. But <laughs> probably not. But his name was made great. Everyone knew who Abraham was. And you will be a blessing. He was a blessing to us as we look back on what this all meant. Okay, And it goes on to this next part, which I think is really, really important. It says, and all peoples, all nations... Okay, every single person, all people on earth will be blessed through Abraham. Through him, all people would be blessed. He had no idea what that probably meant. And that was so foreign to them because back then you didn't bless people. Like the whole love your neighbor as yourself thing, it wasn't a thing yet. And as they looked at other nations, they saw them as threats. So they would see other nations and they would think, all right, we need to destroy them. And then we'll take all of their stuff and that makes our nation bigger. That was the mentality they had. So God saying that you're going to bless all the people on the earth was sort of a foreign thought to them. That didn't quite make sense. But 2,000 years later... God began to put this plan into motion, and a baby was born in a little town called Bethlehem that we all know, and that's what we're celebrating this coming week, is that God kept his promise to Abraham, and through Abraham, all people on earth were blessed, and that blessing was Jesus. And it's why we're here this morning. It's why we're coming back tomorrow night to celebrate the birth of our Savior. In the book of Hebrews, we're going to pick that back up. It kind of moves on. It kind of carries this whole theme. And it says this in, in chapter 11. Again, it says, all these people. So all the people like Abraham and Moses and Gideon and all these people who lived their life by faith, they were still living by faith when they died. So they, had, they might have had their personal promise fulfilled, like God delivered um, the Hebrews out of Egypt. He delivered Gideon in that army, and he met that. He kept that promise. But they knew that there was a global promise, a bigger promise that was not kept yet, that God still had a promise hanging out there. But they lived by faith day by day, knowing that God is who he says he is, and he keeps his promises. And their faith grew. They died before God fulfilled that plan, but they didn't live like they weren't going to see it. They lived as if they were, because God keeps his promises. They didn't just assume that they could will God into doing things. Even though they'd seen evidence of his, uh, you know, keeping his promises, they didn't try to manipulate God, did they? They just lived by faith, knowing that when God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. Knowing that God is who he says he is. And they used that, and they lived that every single day of their lives. 
This was Jewish faith. This is what they were built upon. In the book of Luke, we find a story with Jesus, and he's walking along with his men, his, his crew, and they're cruising along, you know, through the, the strip. And uh, they encounter this guy who's ringing a bell because he's got leprosy. When you had leprosy, you had to let everyone know you were coming because they all thought that you were diseased, that they were going to catch it. So everyone stayed clear. Like, if you get offended when someone walks to the other side of the street, try having leprosy. Like, everyone does it. It's kind of, everyone's like, that guy's gross. Don't go near him. And so they were staying far, far away from this man. But this man, he comes up to Jesus, and he approaches them. And he says, Lord, okay, it's a sign of respect. He says, Lord, if you are willing, if you want this to be done, you can make me clean. You can do it. You would think that this, you know, if, if faith was sort of like a superpower or a force, that you would think that the guy would be like, God, okay, I've been praying every single day. I sent a huge Facebook message out. I forwarded on that chain letter, you know, that said if we get enough people praying together, God's going to do it. So I had 900 people, you know, answer my request for prayer. I even got the pastor to pray because the pastor's prayers are what? Way more powerful than the average person. Okay. I got all these people together, God. And I think now that I've checked all that off, you're going to make me clean. I think that's the way it works, right? It doesn't say that. He just says, if you're willing, like if you want to do this, you can do it. You can do it. You keep your promises. I've seen you heal people before. He knew that Jesus could do this. He'd seen it done. He'd seen it. people healed. He had heard of people healed. There was no deception. There's no magic. There's no formula involved. It's just, if you are willing, you can do this. He didn't go to Jesus with a hope that he would heal him. He went to him with faith, saying, I know that you can do this because you've done it in the past. He was absolutely confident that Jesus could heal him. And it says Jesus reached out his hand, okay, something that you don't do to people with leprosy at this time. You, he reached out his hand. In the, in the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, there's so much talk about cleanliness, and, and you don't touch things that are unclean. And when they went into, like, the Holy of Holies, they had to do all these traditions to, to purify and clean themselves. And Jesus just willfully goes up, touches a man with leprosy, but instead of Jesus getting leprosy, the man was healed. And Jesus says, I'm willing. I'll do it. I can do it. I will do it. Not, he doesn't say, like, oh, your faith, you figured it out you sly devil you, you figured out my formula. He says, no, I'm willing and I will do it. That's Christian faith. That's what we're talking about. Because if he just went to Jesus and it's like, oh, you know, can you please, please, please heal me? Like, I think you can, you know, can you please do it? And, and just going to him and saying, like, oh, I know Jesus is going to heal me because he heals everybody. That's presumption. Faith without a promise is presumption. And it might not match up with, like, the faith that you grew up in. And this might kind of be a little bit weird for some of us today as we look back on our experience and maybe how we grew up. And we kind of thought that faith was more spookier than that, that it was more something you can muster up. And a lot of people might resist this form of faith because it leaves God in control, doesn't it? It leaves God in control. He's the decider. And that's uncomfortable for us. But the truth is... God is in control. We should take comfort in that. Like, we don't have control here. God does. 
Sometimes we think of faith as like, you know, the little munchkin guy in the Wizard of Oz who's pulling all those levers and stuff and making everybody scared and, 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 and all this, that we can control God into doing our bidding. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. And it's when we start thinking that faith is like that, that's when stuff starts creeping in. That's when we begin to wonder. That's when we begin to wander a little bit and we start to open that door of leaving our faith. And the, the truth is it never should have been opened in the first place. And the truth is, and this should scare kind of all of us, if you have young people in your life, this is why this is so important, because a generation of people, of young people, is abandoning faith because the church, people like me, people who are standing up and teaching, you know, people who've been in church a long time, have signed God's name to promises that he never made in the first place. And that should trouble us. That should trouble us. I spoke to someone after the first service, and they were like, I wanted to take a picture of that and send it to their parents. So it's up there. You could take that picture now if you're still here. Okay, because we grew up sometimes thinking God was a certain way, and he wasn't, and that's troubling. And then you don't know how to reconcile that. And so if you grew up with, like, the vending machine God where you just pray and he'll give you everything that you want, that God doesn't exist. And if you lost faith in that God because he didn't answer your prayer, he didn't get you the new car, you didn't get the house, it fell through, or you didn't get the job that you, you prayed and prayed you would get, God is not a vending machine. And if you lost faith because that's what your faith was built on, I, no wonder, because that God doesn't exist. God never made that promise. Or maybe the, the bad things never happened to me, God. If that was your version of God where you said, you know, God says nothing can, bad can happen to me. My life's going to be awesome. It's going to be perfect. And then guess what? Something bad happened to you because it happens to everybody. I don't know if you knew this, but every single person who is born dies at some point, at some point in their life. It's like 100% reality. Taxes and death right? You're going to have, it's all going to happen. And so to go through life thinking that God doesn't let bad things happen is completely false. And so if that's what you've built your life thinking that God's like, no wonder you lost faith. No wonder. Because that's not a promise that God made. So when he breaks that promise that he made to you, no wonder you walked away. No wonder. But the truth is, that's not how God demonstrates his love for us or his concern, is it? It's not by keeping you from all evil and keeping you safe all the time. That's not how he demonstrates love for us. Like a tough parent, he demonstrates it in other ways, letting us go through some of that sometimes for reasons that we'll never know on this side of heaven. But God has a promise for you that's more full of wonder than that than you could ever ever imagine. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, he says this. Paul, who's the man that we probably all know, he grew, uh, like he was a, a, a Pharisee. He hated Jesus. He hated Christianity. He wanted to stomp it out. He imprisoned them. And his life's work was to rid the world of Christians, okay? And so in Romans in chapter 8, he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Okay. Not by shielding us from all the bad things that can happen. He, he demonstrates his love not by healing all sicknesses, and so you'll never get the sniffles or you'll never get that disease. None of that. That's not how God demonstrates his love for us. He did this that while we were still sinners, okay, and this is huge for Paul because that when Paul was alive, Jesus was crucified. So while Paul was still a sinner, while Paul was seeking to destroy what Jesus was doing, Christ died for him. And Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrates his love for us. 
That is huge. That while Paul was still a sinner, Christ died for him. While Paul was running around doing everything that he could to stop it, Christ died for him. For every person in this room, maybe before you even knew who God was, when you made bad decision after bad decision and you kind of were the ruler of your own life, Christ died for you. That even when you knew you shouldn't go to that party, maybe after you knew who Jesus was, maybe you had encountered him and you still went to that party you shouldn't have gone to, or you entered into that relationship you knew you had no business being in, or you did that business deal that you knew was kind of shaky and you shouldn't do it, or you went to that website you shouldn't have been, had no business being on, Christ died for you, for you, for all of us. Some of you need to hear that this morning, that Christ died for you regardless of what happened in your past. And regardless of what your frame of reference looks like, Christ died for you. And when you leave here today and your kids are hopped up on hot chocolate and they're bouncing all over the car and they're doing everything that you ask them not to do and they're breaking the rules and they're screaming and they're doing everything that it is and you just want to say, guess what, little Jimmy, Christmas is canceled, okay? Christ died for them. He died for them. He died for you. When you let your kids stay up late and watch a movie, and then they beg you to watch a second movie, and then that starts World War III, and you say things that you never should have said, and you feel bad about that, Christ died for you. That's how he demonstrates his love for us. He died for you, even when you didn't deserve it, but you did. He died for you. And the trustworthiness, that whole wonder, the wonderfulness of God, it was settled on the cross. The day that Christ died for us, he settled it. He came to this side of the window so we could have someone and be sure, be certain of Christ's love for us. So when the world seems completely upside down, when the world seems like nothing good can go right for you, when chocolate's good for you and lettuce is bad for you, Jesus died for you. Take heart in that, that his never-ending, never-changing, unending love was demonstrated on the cross for you, for you. That's wonder. That's something that should keep us up at night. That's wonder that we should fix our eyes on. So we're all invited to fix our eyes on Jesus, because that's wonder. That's wonder, and we're all invited into that. Little fact, while you were sitting here, inside your body, 2.8 billion cells died. (laughs) Gone. You didn't do anything to cause it either. No one had to teach you to do that. They just died inside of you. Crazy. But also in that time, around that same amount of healthy cells, like split and multiplied, right? Kind of recreated itself inside of you. That's wonder. Wonder, that's, that's amazing. That should fill us with wonder. The thought that when a, a woman is pregnant, okay, this thing forms inside of her, and there's an actual moment in time, okay, a baby, not a thing, but a baby, okay, forms inside the womb. And there's an actual split-second moment when there's no heartbeat, and then magically there is a heartbeat. That should fill us with wonder. How does that happen? Imagine an ultrasound where you could actually see that. Someday that will happen, and that would be amazing, where you could see the first beat of that heart. That would be a cool Valentine's Day gift. 
You can show a little gift. To, anyways, that should fill us with wonder. But the one thing that we should never wonder about is if Christ loved us, because he does. He loves us. So no matter what's going on in the world, we're going we're gonna to finish up here as the worship team comes. In the, the book of John, one of the last, the last gospels, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John wrote this, and John did not live a rose-colored glasses type of life. He lived a hard life. He, he knew Jesus, but he encountered things that no one should have to endure. He saw friends murdered, blood literally filling the streets, Jerusalem destroyed, all this stuff happening to John. And he writes, he begins his gospel like this. He doesn't begin it looking through his frame of reference on all the hurt and the baggage that he carried with him. He says this, in him was life, in Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. It lit the world up. Tomorrow night, we're going to have a, a candlelight service here. And this room will be filled with darkness. And everyone's going to light a candle. And it's just going to illuminate this whole room. It's amazing how a room completely filled with darkness can be illuminated by one tiny light. But Jesus was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And it didn't then. And it didn't now, and it won't in the future. So take heart that God demonstrates his love for us, that we can have faith that God is who he says he is, that he keeps his promises. And God's love for you should never be something that you wonder about. We should have faith in that. So fix your eyes on Jesus this Christmas. Take a moment, like Jim said, read through the Gospel of Luke. Take a moment, fix your eyes on Jesus and the wonder of his love.